Renaissance, episode 23, Ray. The real, the real the Renaissance. Cam and Renaissance. Uh, at the end Which of episode 22, we got up uh-huh. to the point where Petrarch, Francesco Petrarca, as he was known to his friends, um, right. his father died, his mother died, all Petrarch Aww. got out of it was uh, a copy of his father's most beloved book by Cicero, which uh, nice. Petrarch then gave, along with another book, Fuck. De Gloria, to one of his old teachers, who then sold him off for cash, mm. died. Bastard. And as I said last time, that one of those two books, De Gloria on Glory, one of the last books that Cicero wrote before his murder, and uh, it was that copy that Petrarch had was the last copy in existence because it's never been seen again. Which is another example of many why teachers should be paid more. <laughs> but that's for the bullshit filter. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And not trusted. Don't trust teachers. Right. Pay more, but don't trust yeah. them. Right. So yeah. now that his parents are dead, Petrarch is free to dump becoming a lawyer, and instead he's going right. to dedicate himself to becoming a scholar and a poet. But there's only one problem with that mm-hmm. plan, Ray. Like being a teacher, being a poet uh, in the right. early 14th century doesn't pay very well. No. So uh, as far as I know, he was able to get jobs and, uh, as a, I guess, clerical jobs and offices, something to pay the bills. But like you were saying, he spends all of his time reading, writing. Uh, he is focused. His passion is elsewhere. And then he runs smack dab, or should I say, Cupid's arrow gets him right in the ass. Well, uh, what he actually did for, for, yeah. for, for work. Oh, he was a hooker. Minor clerical jobs in offices. Yeah, he got a. He was in office space. He got a job doing uh, <laughs> forms in triplicate. Yeah, if I hadn't just rebuilt my computer and lost all my soundboard, I'd pull up the old office space clip. But can't do that. He got. He he joined the church. Is what he did. Right. He took minor right. orders in the Catholic Church. Now. Being an, a good Catholic boy, I know you know this, but I'll tell. I'll just go cover this over for for the folks that don't. Please, for everybody. In the Catholic else. Church, you yeah. have the major holy orders, which is where you become right. a priest or a bishop or just a you know basic priest. Major orders. Then you have the minor orders. So uh, also mm-hmm. in the major orders, you have priest, uh, deacon, and subdeacon. Um, and then sub sub deacon and sub 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 deacon, um, yeah. Right. And then you have the minor orders: acolyte, exorcist, lector, and porter. I want to be that, right? So um, I don't know which one of those minor orders Petrarch uh, worked in. I'm hoping it was an exorcist because uh, me too. That'd be awesome. You never can have too many exorcists. That's what I found in this life. Um, so yeah, no. So so to support himself while he was being a becoming a poet, he got a job in the church. Mm-hmm. Good, good, steady okay. source of income. Uh, didn't didn't yeah. have to do much for they it. Got all Just the had money. to say, uh, right. you know, uh, by the spirit of Christ, I command you to leave this uh, <laughs> young girl's body. I compel, I compel you. That's the words. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so I can enter it. No, 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 that's not right. That's not right. Sorry, scratch that. Yeah, that's what Catholic priests do to little boys today, but uh, it was Petrarch's oh, style. Oh, God. Now, although yeah. he hated Avignon, he had lived there for years before his father sent him off to university. He hated Avignon and he hated the whole papal court and the, all the, you know, the, the Frenchy bit of it. He hated the French. He hated the fact that the papal court was in <laughs> France, because he's a big fan yeah. of ancient Rome, this guy. Never been there, but um, he just kind of yeah. loved, you know, he was, he was a big fan of reading Cicero, obviously, and Virgil. He loved the idea, a bit like us. He loved the idea of ancient yeah. Rome. He studied fan it. He, he was a fanboy worship. He's like, you know, the, the, it's not bad enough that the, the emperors left and that the emperors then, you know, disappeared altogether from Rome for a while there, and it fell on hard times. Now that even the fucking Pope has left it, it's your your oh. land, Popey. You're supposed yeah, to be running, you're supposed to, you. to be 
making Rome great again, and and <laughs> you've just fucking abdicated it. Get yeah, back to Rome. He, he spent his entire lifetime trying to convince a variety of popes yeah. to move the next five back. Popes. To move back yeah. to Rome. Um, failed, but tried to convince him. So he hates <laughs> Avignon, but his father had lived there, I guess, 20-odd uh, years. When yeah. he died, he'd built a lot of influential contacts there in the papal court. And Petrarch is going to move back there to sort of leverage those contacts, even though he kind of really hated Avignon. But it was there in the city that he hated that at the mm-hmm. age of 23, he fell oh. in love. On Good Friday, 1327, he glimpsed a woman and fell in love. He made his feelings known to her, but she, not unkindly, I think, turned him down. So he took all that passion, all that admiration, his ardor, and he turned it into poems. Some would say songs. He was the first emo lyricists, and this would lead to him becoming the most famous poet of his age because of his blue balls. And of course, uh, you said it was on Good Friday that he fell Mm -hmm. in love with her, and um, his most famous poem is uh, this one. with her and of course this woman is famously he refers to her as Laura and we're right. going to get into whether or not that was actually her name mm-hmm. whether or not she actually even existed but Aww. he said he fell in love with Laura just at first sight now do you believe in love at first sight Ray? I believe in I love be- at first sight to certain body parts <laughs> no okay. I don't no so what do you think so we love it first. So what is it then? Is it just like lust? Is this what it is? Did, I think, it, you know, I think it's... Have you, have you ever, start, have you I ever had lust at first sight? Yeah, I, well, I'm a big fan of... Uh, that's that's how Heather and I, uh, that lucky thing, uh, got together. We I looked at her, lusted. We talked We talked Shakespeare. Then I fell in love. And um, she's been a prisoner uh, wife ever since. You talked Shakespeare. What 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 do you mean you talked Shakespeare? I don't know. We just talked about our admiration so you, of Shakespeare. Where did you Yeah? Where did you where did you first meet your wife? We were I I um saw her hotness, blonde, blue eyes, and her, basically her German features. You know how I love me some German. Um we were teachers in a high school and after school I sauntered into her room. Hi, I'm Ray. I'm new here too. I know that you're new. If there's anything we can do to help each other. Uh, maybe later sexually, that would be great, but we just talked and um, somehow we got around to Shakespeare and our admiration and just uh, certain plays and quotes and stuff like that. And that's when I was able to take my emotional feelings for her and pair it with my very intense, lustful feelings for her. You walked into her classroom and mm-hmm. said, hi, I'm Ray. And she looked around and said, Why, where's that noise coming from? <laughs> But but, but after I said down here and she looked down, I think uh, she fell for me 
almost as hard as I saw for her. You said, hi, I'm Rice. So uh, <laughs> you, like, you like the bard? Hey? Do you like Shakespeare? Hey? Is that what, what gets you, you going? Like wow. Yeah. 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 So, uh, what, what was she teaching at the school? Oh, she's an English teacher. So she was teaching all right. different forms and levels of English, grammar, and all that stuff. So uh, I didn't really and, care about that. Yeah. You were like, uh, what, what, what do I need what to say angle, to an English? What angle yeah. should I use? Oh, Shakespeare. I Boom. Uh, yeah. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Wasn't Petrarch? You didn't say. Uh, <laughs> no. That, no. Uh, no. 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 Um, Lucky woman. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, lust at first sight. Lust at first Which I is do. then followed by love. Right. It, sometimes. Sometimes. Most time not. But definitely a big fan of lust. So do you believe in so this is, love at first sight? Um, no, okay. um, I don't. You know, when Chrissy and I met, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've fallen in love many times, Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in love with Janet Jackson recent, in the nineties, but go ahead. As recently as yesterday, no. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, uh, Chrissy and I fell pretty hard for each other very quickly. Right. You, know, you know the story. Yeah. Most people know the story, which is a little bit weird. People come up to me in the street and say, "Hey, I heard that story." <laughs> Um, you know, we met in, in Ajaxio within, like, that night we spent hours talking to each other. It was pretty sort of an instant attraction. Nice. Um, but here's the thing with Petrarch is he says he saw Laura in church at oh. uh, the Church of St. Clair, St. Clair d'Avignon. Right. And as far as we know, they never spoke to each other, mm. let alone... Did the deed right? Um, like they never really spoke to each other. He he says she turned him down, but he doesn't go any details. So I don't think he went up to her and said, "Hey, how are you hey. doing? <laughs> uh, hey, hey, you like Shakespeare? Hey, hey." Um, because uh, she said, uh, "Who's Shakespeare?" And he goes, yeah. "Don't worry, I'm going to influence right. him. Right. It's going to be <laughs> everything Shakespeare knows. Right. He's going to learn from me. Yeah. Trust me on this." Yeah. But uh, then you're going to love him, right. and then you'll realize it's me. You really. should have slept with me all this time. So maybe he he sent her a letter. Maybe he winked at her from across the room. Uh-huh. We don't really know. But as I was saying before, we don't even know if she really existed. But anyway, he wrote in my youth. I bore the stress of a passion most violent, though honourable, and the single one of my life. And I should have borne it even longer than I did, had not death, opportune in spite of its bitterness, quenched the flame just as it was beginning to grow less intense. Now, she died 20 years later, and we'll tell the story, but... Mm -hmm. um, He was in love with her, uh, unrequited love from a distance... For 20 years, and as you've indicated, um, took all of this passion and angst and put it into poetry and prose and invented the Renaissance, sort of in the process. Uh, So it all came out of this love. Now, who was Laura? We don't know. He told us nothing about her except this name, and he even just hinted at the name in various places. Um, scholars have debated whether or not she even existed uh, for the last 700 years. Uh, but I think general view of scholarship today is that she did exist. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about some of the reasons why and some of the theories? Well, um, I just I just wanted to start out with saying, so he, he obviously he could not keep his mouth shut about her. But from what I read, he did not identify her even to his friends, which, try, which um, drove them crazy. Did you read about his, um, what he wrote inside his copy of Virgil that's inside still to this day in the Ambrosian Library at Milan? Yes, and okay. um, I think I'll read that out, but after, okay. after she's dead. Yeah. But yes, he okay. did write something about her in his copy of Virgil. Yeah, just that, I, again... Um, whether it was all in his head, whether he passively um, pursued her or just kept it at a distance, I don't know, but it certainly motivated him. Um, I can't even remember what your question was. Some of the reasons why scholars today think she did exist, and you mentioned one of them. He, right. In his private copy of 
Virgil, he wrote the date he first saw her and the date of her death and a few other things about her. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the reasons why even his friends sometimes suggested that she wasn't, she didn't really exist, mm-hmm. that he just made her up or invented her as a muse, uh. was that Laura... Uh, could have referred to the laurel crown of poetry. He, he wanted to be the poet laureate, the first poet laureate that Rome had seen in a thousand years. And so maybe that was his love, that his love wasn't an actual human woman, it was glory. He, 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 he wanted the, he want, yeah, he wanted to be crowned the poet laureate. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, she may have been a woman who did exist in Avignon at the time, Laura de Novus. She was the wife of the of Count Hugo de Sade, right. an ancestor of the Marquis de Sade, the inventor of sadism. Um, she, I think she invented sadism. She was like, you know, she used to tie Petrarch up and go and stick a pussy and cold it like an inch out of his face right. and go, you want to lick uh, this, don't you? Uh, you want it. You uh, want to lick it. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to let you lick it. Nope. I'm going to whip you because you're a bad boy. You're a bad boy. <laughs> Say it. Say you're a bad boy. Now I'm getting turned on. Say you're a bad boy <laughs> and I might let you lick it. No, no, I'm not going to let you lick it. And if it is her, there is uh, still a portrait of her in the um, the Laurentian, however you say it, library at Florence, which we should have checked Florence. out. But hey, I didn't know. But um, yeah, we don't know if it was her or not. And if it was her... She was already married, and she's well on her way to having twelve children, or she's going to be. She's going to have twelve children, so she's a little bit busy. She doesn't really have time for um for this uh, for this young guy. Yeah, uh, again, maybe she was married when he first saw her. Maybe she wasn't. Mm-hmm. We don't know. We don't yeah. even know that much about Laura De Novas and her timeline. We don't have a lot of biographical information about her, just that she existed and she said we've got a portrait or two of her. Um, he doesn't really talk much about her in his poems, even though he talks about his love of her constantly. Right. <laughs> Um, he says that she was lovely to look at, fair-haired, with a modest, dignified bearing, this light in her eyes, all this usual stuff. Um, but the other reason why scholars tend to think she was real is that for 40 years, mm-hmm. Petrarch kept a secret diary. Uh, it's known as his secretum. Now, you left some secretum uh, on the bed linens. I thought uh, I wiped that up. I'm sorry. Florence. Yeah, I'll but do this is a different. Oh, 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 go ahead. Different secretum, right? Um, this is a book that he wrote that was in the form of him having a debate with Saint Augustine, mm. and he never published this in his lifetime. It was published posthumously. Now he may have intended it to be published posthumously. We don't know. And in this secretum, he criticizes the church quite a lot and various popes and various public figures. But um, he also talks and debates with St. Augustine about the honorability of loving a woman. But uh, there's a lot of sort of backwards and forwards with him sort of talking about whether or not loving a woman as opposed to loving the Lord is worthy or not worthy. And and there's – but he talks a lot about being in love with this woman and his guilt over – loving this woman that he can't have and who maybe is married or is out of his reach and maybe he should have focused more of his energy on loving the Lord. And and um, so, again, because he was writing all this stuff for 40 years, up until he died, he kept this by his bedside and wrote in this book Wow! Um, without anyone seeing it. Scholars tend to think that she was probably a real woman. Whether or not she was Laura de Noves, mm-hmm. uh, we obviously don't know. Yeah. But he is going to go on for the next 21 years and write 207 sonnets and other poems about whoever this person was. So again, um, this and and here's the funny part for me. Everybody, but everybody, is writing poetry. It's just that his happens to be better than everybody else. Uh, Lawyers are writing poetry. Theologians are writing poetry. Even his own valet is writing poetry. And he, he actually wrote down, he soon feared that the very cattle would begin to low 
in verse. So everybody's writing new poetry. It's not like that he's doing anything different, but the quality of his imagery and his words and his language is going to take it just pretty quickly above and beyond what everybody else is doing. And this is going to lead to the beginning of his fame. Yeah, but I think a lot of that poetry writing, it was inspired by him. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he was, you know, very quickly became famous for his poetry, and right. everyone else is like, "Well, oh, that's not hard. I could do that." <laughs> right? It's like when people listen to our show and I they go, t- oh, "I could do I that." I could do a podcast, and then they ask us, "How about many?" It. Yeah, how many fucking emails do we get from people going, "I'm recommend? starting a podcast." What do you recommend? Tell me how to do it. And I go, "Yeah, no worries. Here's my book. I wrote. Go read that. Good luck." And then they send us their first episode. They go, here's our first episode. What do you think? I go, that is shit. Seriously. And then we kill their dreams. We kill their their dreams. Yeah, dream killers. Yeah. Oh, my God. But but not his, as easy as it looks, right? But but his his these poems about this person are going to go on and inspire and inflame the passions of Italian men. And if you've ever been to Italy, you can know that the young men there are pretty already impassioned. But this is going to just set a trend for them to uh, to like you said try to mimic him and to create their own love poems. So I spent a lot of time over the last week. Researching this, trying to figure out why were Petrarch's love poems so influential. Hmm. He didn't invent love. He didn't invent love poetry. Mm -hmm. Apart from the quality of his writing, and now I want to point out that this collection of poems, the uh, Canonieri, Canzonieri. Isn't even written in Latin. It's written in the vernacular Italian of its day. Mm-hmm. But why do you think it became so influential, Ray? Uh, I don't know. I just know that it was very influential on the young Italian men. So maybe it was something that captured their imagination that made it very popular. But I honestly do not know. Well, the conclusion that I came to is mm-hmm. that it was a different and style of love poem. So in the centuries before Petrarch, the 12th and 13th centuries, you had the troubadours. This is the era of the troubadours. Sort of came out of France and Spain initially, made its way to England. This is, you know, your your, your, your King Arthurian troubadour kind of stuff, um, which celebrated what's known as courtly love. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, um, you would have a queen or the wife of a member of the nobility, uh, and you had like a Sir Galahad or a Sir Lancelot, some knight, who said, wow, you are smoking hot <laughs> and I would love to do you, right. but I can't. Because <laughs> um, I got this armor So, on. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, and I lost the key. Um, But I'm going to go out there and uh, do amazing feats of bravery. Slay a dragon. In in order to show you how much I love you and what I would do to you. When I'm stabbing my lance into this dragon, I want you to know that what I'm thinking about... Oh, yeah, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor, exactly. Um... Now, courtly love, I mean, it was very spiritual in many ways. It was uh-huh. sort of the, these women were idolized as like uh, 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 figures of unattainable purity and, and beauty, um, bit sort of clo- clothed in like the, the, the Virgin Mary-esque ah, kind of right. religious uh, Distant. Clo- uh, yeah. you know, framework. Yeah. Yes. It was very spiritual. Um, it was very. It was. It, there was sex behind it. It wasn't like I don't want to bang you. I do, and and the women wanted to bang them as well, and probably they did quite often. Have to, of course, remember that um, these women were marrying or being married to members of the elite, the nobility. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't have love. Their job was to cement alliances and right. to pop out kids sure. before they died, as many as they could. 
And so these 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 troubadours were running around, or these knights and troubadours writing about them, saying, you know, these guys want to do you because uh, they think you're smoking hot, right. and um, so the, the, that that existed. But it was there was this um, distance oh, there, okay. this courtly love. What Petrarch's doing is different. Petrarch's going, oh my god, uh, I love you so much. And you won't give yourself to me, and it's killing me inside. Personal. It's not like, right. my lady, watch what I shall do to this dragon. I over here, and just visualize what I would do to your clitoris. Um, this is more personal. It it's it's more real. Right. Yeah, the, the mythical clitoris. <laughs> While I kill this mythical dragon, it symbolizes the mythical clitoris. Um and I'm sure if I ever found your clitoris, I would stab at it with a large pointy object until I killed it. Because sex is for men. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anywho. Yeah. Um, so what, what Petrarch's doing with his can, uh, canzonieri mm-hmm. is, is a lot more deep. It's a lot more genuine. It's a lot more first person. And he's talking about the pain of love and oh, the pain the of desire. Angst. And oh. and there's a lot more in the Canzonieri, which, I mean, I haven't read the whole 366 poems really? in there, but I've I read a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very, um, yeah, as you said before, he's the first emo uh, poet, really. Right. Um, he created, you know, The Cure. He basically <laughs> wrote all of The Cure's songs. <laughs> They just put it to music. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Lord Byron uh, uses Petrarch and Laura uh, uh, in one of his poems as an example of the thought that love could only exist outside of marriage. Ah. He wrote, Don't tell my wife. There's doubtless, there's doubtless something in domestic doings which forms, in fact, true love's antithesis. Let me try that again. I can't speak. Right. There's doubtless something in domestic doings which forms, in fact, true love's antithesis. Mm -hmm. Romances paint at full length people's wooings, but only give a bust of marriages. For no one cares for matrimonial cooings. There's nothing wrong in a connubial kiss. Think you, if Laura had been Petrarch's wife, he would have written sonnets all (laughs) his life? No. 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 Do you remember the thing? Fam- did you write what? Did you did you write love letters to Heather uh, when you were dating yes. her uh, in yes. the first year of your? Yes. Do you write them now? Fuck no! I don't even text her. <laughs> no, no. I don't even. I don't even text her a heart. Do, do you remember that? What was that? That Kevin Smith film, um, Dogma. Chasing Amy. Oh, Dogma. Dogma yep. Whether on the bus and those two people are kissing, and Matt Damon goes, "No married man kisses his wife like that." That's exactly what this is. If it's really passionate, they're obviously not married together, married to each other. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, according to Byron, anyway, it was the very nature of the unrequited love mm. that uh, kept Petrarch going all those years. So she should have got so royalties. Ilk- yeah. Il canzonieri, uh, in English, the song book. Mm-hmm. It's also known as the rhyme sparse or scattered rhymes because that's how he starts it off. But it's originally entitled uh, Rerum Vulgarium Fragmenta hmm. or Fragments of Common Things. Wow. Okay. 366 love poems he wrote. God. He went to town. Now, why do you... Th- yeah. Why do you think he wrote them in the vernacular instead of in Latin? Oh, that's a good point because because of the other stuff that he's going to be writing, the major works are going to be in Latin because he wants the entire Western world to be able to access them. I honestly don't know. Was it was it more passionate? Was it more? Uh, I don't know. Was it so maybe she could read it because maybe she doesn't read Latin? I really do not know. That's my theory. Yeah. He wrote it in the vernacular so she could read them. Ah. And, you know, what's the point of writing love poems to some <laughs> woman if she language. can't read them? Right. <laughs> yeah, you're barely talking to her. Maybe she'll buy a copy in a bookstore and run to you. But, yeah, what's the point if it's in a language she cannot read? I'm pretty sure everyone he wrote, he left it on her doorstep 
tied up in a ribbon and then rang the doorbell and ran ran away (laughs) and would watch from the bushes. It's basically it's basically a John Hughes film. This whole story, man. You know exactly. yeah, no, I think he wrote them in the vernacular so she could read them and, and, and would know how much he loved her. And in fact, everybody would know. Right. Uh, if, in fact, they knew who she was, which they didn't. And, and I'm guessing mm-hmm. if it was a case where she was married, um, that Laura wasn't her real name. Right. He would have given her a, a pseudonym mm-hmm. to protect her identity. Right. So, Yeah. Anyway, he wrote these poems, we know, because he dated them uh, over a period of 40 years. The earliest was written in 1327, Mm -hmm. and the latest was around 1368. He died in 1374. Damn. um, But between 1368, when he wrote the last poem, and 1374, he kept... Ordering the reordering the the sequence of them and still tinkering with it um, his entire life. So the first one he wrote just after he met her, and he wrote basically love poems. Even for twenty years after she died, he kept writing love poems ah, to her and sick. about her. Right, right. <laughs> sex with a dead person. Oh, Laura, your rotting corpse turns me on. <laughs> to this day. Oh, if I Ew. could find that, I would get up in that shit. <laughs> I wouldn't let that bother me. No, pick out the worms. And anyway, I'm getting turned on. They're just more wriggling. It makes it feel like you're still alive <laughs> no! down there, the no! wriggling of the worms. Oh, it's go- all good. It's erection. all good. Oh, God. Okay. Uh the next thing I have is about uh, either his illegitimate children or the the hooking up with the um, Colonia family. What do you have next? Oh, let me let me keep going yeah. with some of this uh, love poems then. So, in the in the collection of love poems, um, it's not just love that he talks about. The, sort of his his love for Laura is sort of the the premise for all of the poems. But he goes off and does a much deeper psychological analysis on the human condition, Mm -hmm. um, starting from the basis of his unrequited love for Laura. But uh, I wanted to point out that this uh, Canzonieri is referred to by scholars as the single greatest influence on love poetry in Renaissance Europe well into into the 17th century. He's a young guy. So pretty much from, from, yeah, from Petrarch uh, right through to Shakespeare, um, you know Shakespeare probably picks up the title of the biggest influence in love poetry in the 17th century. But for you know six, seven, uh, six, six, three hundred years, um, Petrarch is the man. That's, when you think love poetry, yeah. you think Petrarch. That's impressive. Yeah. Now, um, you know, I, I want to get back to talking a little bit about why this is important um, mm-hmm. from a from a Renaissance perspective and getting back to him being the father of humanism. We talked about this in our last episode. You know, he is using love as the starting point to talk about what it means to be human. Right. Why do we live our lives? What's the point of all of this shit? <laughs> what are we meant to do? Right. How do we find happiness and peace and fame and success and glory? And as I said last time, remember in the Middle Ages, people were mostly concerned with what happens to your soul when you die. Mm-hmm. And he cares about that too. Like the two books he carried with him everywhere were Cicero and a collection of Cicero and St. Augustine's um, City of God and his Confessions. So, you know, Cicero, he read for the beauty of the Latin and for thinking about broader issues. St. Augustine, he read to think about how to be a good Christian. So he's straddling both worlds. But the meaning of life and and love is really what, uh, you know, a large part of his work is based on. It's not just the Canzonieri. We'll talk about his other works as well. But this is he got he was so famous and so influential not just in his lifetime but in the decades and centuries afterwards that he got other people thinking about these questions as well which is why he's known as the father of humanism and the father of 
the Renaissance. And you make a good point when you're in your mid to late, I mean, excuse me, early to mid 20s. I mean, you're not exactly a New York guy, not exactly thinking about God all the time. I mean, this is about not only women, about love and about beauty, but everyday life. How do I live my life? What's a good way to live my life? He's, he's thinking about real world issues, even now, something like love and passion that doesn't have anything in, in this context to do with the church. He's thinking about the here and now. And like you said, that's a break from what the people of the Middle Ages uh, were doing. And he's writing about it. And he's also writing about um how achieving glory and achieving mm-hmm. fame right. would help him get get some pussy. <laughs> um, now this is That's why I wanted you know, the podcast. This goes exactly, exactly. How did that work out for you? Um, mm. Well, I mean, yeah, you want to keep going? I mean, okay, fine. No, I'll just say it. Did I get laid several times by several different people on the trip? Yes, I did. That had to be because of podcasting. I'll let you guess who. Well, you spent most time alone with Adrian Vip, so I'm guessing it was okay, Adrian. He always one. came back looking flushed and his hair was tussled. So. <laughs> he was the only one. I was lying. Um, the, uh, you know, it gets back to, to Tony Montana. First you get the power, what? then you get the money, then you get the woman, right? Yeah. Um, it the other way around. First you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the woman. I think it's that way. I've always said this, Ray. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been one of the foundations of my um, worldview for, for, for many decades, is that everything men do right. in their lives, whether it's success in, in the sporting arena, music, acting, business, politics, the church, everything men do in their lives okay. is about getting pussy. Oh, yeah. Here, here. I concur, doctor. At its very fundamental level, at the very basic level, everything that we do, we justify it in all sorts of ways. It's about success or fulfillment or ambition. <clears throat> you know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. Um, of self-fulfillment. Really, all of it under the bottom. What have you left? At the bottom of the basement. Uh, Maslow. Right. Maslow has like food and shelter. No, it's pussy. Is <laughs> at the bottom of that. Everything you're else that men have ever done. Right. Conquering empires, blah, blah, blah. Well, if you're Alexander the Great, maybe it's a tight <laughs> ass is really but pussy. Still, but it's get it's still. getting your dick wet, basically. <laughs> well let's 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 not be Let's be honest. Um let's, Well I, mean, I was gonna say let's, let's not, not beat around the bush. Assume right. That for all men, it's pussy. I mean, it's getting your dick wet right. in any in whether it's pussy or ass or goat. Um, <laughs> it's what it all comes down to at the end of the day. And this this is not by accident. No, we are genetically, biologically designed. It's not our fault to need. Yeah, to come. This <laughs> is the whole purpose of our existence is to come. Right. So. Uh, and and you know Petrarch in his own way is is acknowledging and celebrating that because mm-hmm. he's saying, yeah, okay, uh, I love you, but I'm going to go and become famous, and then uh, maybe right. I'll get my dick wet exactly. finally. Yes. yes. So he says he says um, not in Canzonieri, although he touches on this, I think, but in. Um, some poems he writes called the uh, triumphs or triumphi is that man's life goes through different stages. He starts off when he's a young man, he's the slave of his appetites. He calls this uh, love or self-love, but then he gets a little bit older, gets a little bit more mature, realizes that just trying to get his dick wet all the time is mm-hmm. not a good way to spend his life. So he starts trying to control his appetites and he overcomes them with chastity, mm. denies himself the opportunity when he could take it. Then amidst all of these struggles to keep his dick in his pants, he dies. Death claims victory over him. Wow. But the man who has done illustrious and honourable deeds survives his own death through making podcasts <laughs> and acquires fame. Right. Everlasting. And so... Yes, he, he, he achieves victory over death through fame. Ah, but, <clears throat> he says, time eventually 
obliterates even the memory of his fame. So at the end, the only chance you have of living forever Mm -hmm. is by joining with God in blessed eternity. So he left that bit on the end. Love triumphs over man, chastity over love, death over both, fame triumphs over death, time over fame, Mm -hmm. and God and eternity over time. Ah, because the uh, the that quote or that passage I had copied, but it didn't have the God at the end, so I don't know why. But um, I find that very interesting that he left that that in. I guess to cover his ass with the church just to be safe. No, I, I think he he was a true believer. Okay, he was a true believer in God, man. Right. I mean, that's why he was um, kept that, Saint Augustine by his side at all times. But that's not to, to certainly say why he, he he certainly had his issues with the church, as we said before, and we'll say again, and we'll give examples. But he, but because he is is going to rub elbows with bishops and cardinals, he is going to see the darker side of the Catholic Church. Yeah, but you know Martin Luther had issues with the church too, and he was a true believer. Mm-hmm. This isn't an either or option. Right. These guys right. had issues with the corruption mm-hmm. of Catholicism, right. but were still true believers. Yeah. So um, to get back, if I may, to the story of Petrarch, these are gathered up. They're they're turned into, like you said, a songbook. Uh, they they he becomes famous. He is known for having a quick wit. He is known for finding beauty in women, nature, literature, arts. So he has his he has a he's accepted amongst the uh, culture society. He occasionally speaks out against the actions of local priests, but he is still acceptable to people like Bishop Giacomo Colonna and his brother Cardinal Giovanni Colonna, and because they are members of the church and they are rich and powerful, they patronize his work. So again, so he he has his issues, but he does believe. But because of his refined status and his now new fame for the book, he is able to hobnob with bishops and cardinals. And because they've got all the money, they patronize him, and he's going to be able to um he's going to be able to travel. He does. I don't know how much detail you have. Probably more than I do. He does have a mistress. He does get two illegitimate children, but he still does start traveling soon after this. Maybe because of the children, I don't know. But the point is now that with the support of the bishop and the cardinal, he's able to start traveling, which in some ways makes him the world's first tourist. Yes. Uh, before we get into that, yeah. yeah, the Kelowna family that were patrons of his, um, very rich, powerful family. I think they came out of uh, Tuscany originally. Um, ended up, uh, you know, producing several popes and cardinals and all of that kind of stuff. Um, fighting with their arch rivals, the Orsini <laughs> family, over the control of Rome. Right. For uh, for centuries, really, yeah. these two families were—they were like the Hatfields and the McCoys, man. <laughs> they were at each other. <laughs> they could back for it up centuries. With money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he he gets in good with these uh, Kelowna boys, <laughs> and uh, they the they Kelowna look after him. He boys. lives in their he lives in their palace, their palazzo for for a long time. Right. Um. So, but as you said, he's he, Petrarch is the first tourist. Yep. He loved just walking around and looking at stuff. Now, this is obviously uh, unusual for the Middle Ages. People didn't do that. As I said earlier, most people never left the the place they were born in. Mm -hmm. They grew up, they were born, they grew up, they died. All Married a local girl? Without moving, yeah, without travelling more than 10 miles. Right. Um, Because why would you? Uh, And who has the fucking time, (laughs) right? We're busy. Um, Trying to survive. Yeah, trying to survive the plague and, <laughs> you know, the non-stop wars that are going on. You plant your crops, some right. cunt comes in and burns them down in the middle of a war. You go, ah, shit, rapes your daughter, kills your son. you got to go back and grow another crop. Right. So you can have more kids that can be killed the next time there's another war or another plague why would or whatever you, it is. Why would you walk and increase your chances of coming into contact with the Black Death? That's why yeah, most or, people did do it. Or cunts with swords, right? right? Yeah, it's it's <laughs> And... You go too far from like if you're in if you're living in a you know particular city right there's probably a, a a king or a duke or somebody there with some power with some soldiers that can defend your area ah, from the from the enemy why leave that you, you walk out of there you, you, you it's like 
being an American today and going, you know, I'm just going to go to <laughs> Iran, see what's there. Check it out. I'm going to... I'm going to go, where's ISIS now? Uh, <laughs> or I'm going to go to Syria. I'll just go to Syria, walk around, see what's... No! Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's dangerous. You don't do that. Right. Walk around with your, with the American flag on your T-shirt and, you know, you, you, what there's a fucking hat you were wearing all through Europe, the USS, some bullshit. Like, wow. you know, like oh. carry a big sign saying, yeah. I'm an American yeah. everywhere you go. Don't fuck with me, yeah. Wearing, yeah. wearing your sandals and your uh, shorts... <laughs> You were like that. Who's that douchebag? We were. I think he was in Florence. The douchebag walking around with a t-shirt on one of our tours, saying, "You stomp on my flag, and I'll stomp on your ass." Yeah, or something like that. He's. He, we. I wanted to push him <clears throat> off the heights, but anyway, yeah, people like that are. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's why I was in Rome. Yeah, we wanted to push him off the fucking <laughs> the hill, Palatine Hill. Anywho, um, come on the tour uh, with us. So he. He travelled. Petrarch toured. Yeah. Um, he just loved seeing shit. Um, you know, people did travel, like, for business, for war, for diplomacy in the Middle Ages. They did, but th- yeah. only if they had to. Right, there was a reason. They didn't just go travel to look at stuff. <laughs> Petrarch did. He was like, yeah. you know, I want to see what's over, what's over there. I, I don't right. know. I'm going to go have a look. So Now, yeah. there was another reason he travelled, too. Right. He was looking for old books. Right. He said, whenever I took a far journey... I would turn aside to any old monasteries that I chanced to see in the distance, saying, who knows whether some scrap of the writings I covet may not lie here. Ooh, book detective. Yeah. So in, so he's yeah. yeah, he's a book hunter. Yeah. Oh, I like that. So in 1331, he's in Paris. Then he goes to Flanders. Then he goes to Germany. Then he goes to Rome in 1336. And because he's the guest. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Getting too far ahead. Okay. Slow down. Yeah, yeah. So his first trip yeah. was when he was 25. Wow. So what's uh, 13, 29? 29. 30, 29. 4. Yeah. And it takes him to Liege mm. in Belgium. Right. Now, uh, as he said, he's walking around. He's like, what's, oh, look at that. There's an old monastery. I wonder what's in there. Um and uh, he discovered. Oh no, this is thirteen thirty three. He was when was he born again? Thirteen or something. Four. Uh, okay, those numbers don't. Well, maybe it's a long trip. I don't know. Anyway, in thirteen thirty three, he discovers a work by Cicero. Ooh. Um, the Pro Archia Poeta. Um, now, this had been lost uh, since the dark times. This was Cicero's defense of Aulus Licinius Archias, a poet accused of not being a Roman citizen, but pretending to be a Roman citizen. He happened to be a mentor and teacher of Cicero in his early education and rhetoric. Um, so Petrarch walking around, knocking on the doors of monasteries and saying, do you mind if I, hey, listen, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm an official with the church, and he was. Right. Um, friendly with the Cardinal uh, Colonna, um, here from Papal Court. Come to inspect your, uh, your uh, scriptorium. Uh, don't get in my way. I'm here to see if you have any uh, illegitimate uh, books, any porn um, you know, nasty shit ancient, in there. Ancient porn. Yeah. And he would, uh, you know, Pedicabo Irumabo, looking to see if you've got any of that. Oh, he's disappointed. I wore that shirt several times in Europe. No nobody, one. Nobody. No one pulled me aside and said, I know what that says. And that's interesting because the, the main sport in Europe is people watching. I thought for sure somebody was going to uh, point it out or laugh, yeah. or but I was disappointed. Like Tony, I love it, Tony. I, the first time I had it on, Tony Kynaston said, uh, what, is that? what does that mean? And I said, you haven't heard our episode? He goes, no, I'm a little bit behind. I go, well, I'm not going to tell you. And he goes, come on, tell me. And I said, it says, it means I'm going to fuck you in the ass and fuck you in the mouth. And he goes, well, come on. No, look, I was just asked, what does it mean? I'm going, no, that's what it means. And he didn't believe me. 
And he looked it up and he goes, oh, shit, that, that is actually what it means. Oh, so that's yeah. so Tony. Yeah, no, I wasn't, yeah. I wasn't just, you know, <laughs> fucking <laughs> being a dick. <laughs> Tony. He thought I was just being a dick yeah. over breakfast. Yeah. Go, no, no, really, that's what it means. Um, so he finds this uh, pro-archaea poeta and, you know, this is – you know, where he starts to really decide, I think, that he's going to devote himself to collecting ancient manuscripts. So apart from writing poetry Mm -hmm. and trying to convince the papacy to move back to Rome, a large part of his life is spent building a personal library of lost books from antiquity, and he does a pretty good job of it. Yeah. I, I just want to give a little bit about the pro uh, Achaea. I just found this interesting. So it was the published literary form of Cicero's defense of Aulus uh, Licinius Archaeus, like you said, a poet who was accused of not being a Romanist citizen. But this was this accusation was believed to have been politically motivated as a move against Lucullus through Achaeus. And as some of us may remember, Lucullus was an ally of Pola Sola, who um, Lucullus was the main conqueror of the Eastern Kingdoms during the Third Mithridatic, uh, Mithridatic War. And um, it was interesting because what, what little they could remember or what was still found about this um, speech was that Cicero, Cicero would begin his defense. And I think we've said this before, but no matter if you were for Cicero or against Cicero, when he was about to give a speech defending people, they just sat back and they just got ready for a show because they knew he was going to be amazing. So he would start off by trying to gain the goodwill of the judges. He would talk about his natural talents and his experience and his strategy. But at the same time, he would try to appeal to be humble and say that as great as I am, I am nothing compared to the qualities of my current client. This was a standard thing. And he would ask the judge to indulge him and to excuse his new manner of speaking, which was in the style of a poet. And again, he he would just put on a show and everybody would enjoy it. But as we all know, bribes were rampant back then. But uh, Cicero, in his heyday, put on a show and everybody appreciated it, no matter what side. If you already knew which way you were going to vote, didn't matter. Yeah, but I think, you know, the... The big thing that that Petrarch took away from this oration is Cicero is not only defending the poet, but he's defending poetry. Ah. And what he says in this defense um, is, look, he he is, uh, Archias is a Roman citizen, but even if he wasn't, Mm -hmm. he should be because his poetry is fucking awesome. And poets are the fucking bomb, man. Like, yeah. what is life without poetry? It is our rock and roll, is actually what Cicero said. <laughs> and um, so, you know, Petrarch read that, and he was like, fucking right on, Cicero. I knew I liked you for a reason. Poets are going to pass. poets are rock and roll stars. I'm going to be a rock and roll star. Yeah. And this is where he's going to dedicate his life to. Now, a few years after this, in 1336... I think you were getting to this before. Mm-hmm. Petrarch and his brother climb to the top of Mont Ventoux in the Provence region of France. This is a two kilometre high mountain. <laughs> Don't know what that is in miles. Uh, 1.6 miles high, is that right? Sounds yeah. right. Um, now, the story is that he just saw it and he went, I'm going to climb that. <laughs> and, and, a, and a local guy said, Don't do it. I did it 50 years ago, and there's nothing there. It's po- pointless. Nothing on top. I thought there was a, you know, I saw a rainbow. I thought there'd be a pot of gold and a leprechaun. There was nothing. <laughs> nothing. Fuck. No one has climbed it for 50 years because it's too difficult and there's no point. Petrarch said, fucking sounds good to me. Um, <laughs> now, I bet you don't know why he climbed the mountain, Ray. Uh, I read that it was purely for the exercise, the view, and the vanity of victory which to me starts the expression, why do you climb a mountain? Because it's there. No, he did it for love, right? Just like Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why 
is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? To hug the mountain. To envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. To envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. That mountain, that mountain. He wants to make love to the mountain. Tough young guys, sinewy bodies and their fingers and teeny toes challenge the rock, challenging death. Why do I climb a mountain? Because I'm in love. There is a passionate affair going on between Kirk and the mountain. Kirk is on the Kirk is on the mountain. Create that illusion, sucking some of the most sensational men who not only climb are voracious, fleeting, and elusive and peripheral. And that's putting me on the mountain. Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Hold it, please. A hug the mountain. Envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. To envelop that mountain with hug the mountain. That mountain, that mountain. He wants to make love to the mountain. And the climb is going where no man has gone before. Where no man has gone before. Go. That's all you that? need to know. God, <laughs> I've played that before. I'm sure on the show somewhere. I... Captain Kirk is climbing the mountain. Oh my god! So, so a couple of wow, yeah, that was like really good porn music with bad poetry. But anyway, um, so a couple of years before he climbs this mountain, he's in Paris, he's in Flanders, he's in Germany, and the same year that he climbs the mountain, he does visit Rome. He is the guest of the Church Brothers that we talked what, about. What? What? Yeah. What? 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 I, that we're not done with the mountain yet. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you mountain away, my friend. You go ahead. You go ahead. So we have to talk about the mountain because one of the turning points of his life happens when he's on the mountain. Okay. So he climbs Mount Ventu. It's a tough climb. It's a dangerous climb. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets to the top. He's tired. It's a beautiful view. His clothes are tattered. He's fallen over. He's exhausted. He looks around. He's like, yeah, fuck yeah, I climbed the mountain. (laughs) And he pulls out his copy of St. Augustine's City of God, which, as I said earlier, was his favorite book outside of Cicero. Right. Opens it at random and reads this passage. And men go about to marvel at the heights of the mountains, at the huge waves of the sea, at the broad estuaries of the rivers, at the circuit of the ocean and the revolutions of the stars, but forsake their own souls. Mm. And he says he became angry with himself and immediately started climbing back down the mountain. He wrote later, I closed the book, angry with myself that I should still be admiring earthly things who might long ago have learned from even the pagan philosophers that nothing is wonderful but the soul, which, when great itself, finds nothing great outside itself. Then, in truth, I was satisfied that I'd seen enough of the mountain. I turned my inward eye upon myself, and from that time, not a syllable fell from my lips until we reached the bottom again. We look about us for what is to be found only within. How many times, think you, did I turn back that day to glance at the summit of the mountain, which seems scarcely a cubit high compared with the range of human contemplation? So scholars say that this is the turning point Mm -hmm. in uh, his life, one of the turning points, meeting Laura was one, 
climbing the mountain was the next. He says, you know what? Yeah, the view is great, but imagine what I could do if I dedicated myself to understanding the human condition uh-huh. rather than just looking at the world around me. Right. And so he writes that the proper study of mankind is man himself. And this is what he's going to devote the rest of his life to, using his poetry as a medium, the study of the human condition. And again, this is one of the reasons why he's thought of as being the father of the Renaissance, because people read this and went, fuck yeah, man, right on. Yeah. Let's, let's go study. Let's go study what it means to be human. So the climb of up Mount Ventoux is critical uh, in the development of the Renaissance. Nice. And as we were saying, now, yeah, go ahead. I'm not, I'm not finished with the mountain. Sorry. So um, despite all of that, his accounts of the, the grandeur of the scenery is considered to be a very modern uh, aesthetic appreciation. And in fact, his account of the view is still included in modern books and journals about mountaineering. He's considered the first mountain climber who climbed mountains just for the fun of it. <laughs> wow. Um, J.H. Plum, a uh, Renaissance uh, scholar of the Renaissance, wrote in one of his books, um, for pleasure alone, he climbed Mont Ventoux, which rises to more than 6,000 feet beyond Vaucluse. It was no great feat, of course, but he was the first recorded alpinist of modern times, the first to climb a mountain merely for the delight of looking from its top. Or almost the first, for in a high pasture he met an old shepherd who said that 50 years before he had attained the summit and had got nothing from it save toil and repentance and torn clothing. Petrarch was dazed and stirred by the view of the Alps, the mountains around Lyon, the Rhone, the Bay of Marseille. He took Augustine's confessions from his pocket and reflected that his climb was merely an allegory of aspiration, of aspiration towards a better life. Wow. So I'll finish the mountainy talk there. But it's, it's, a, it's a big, big moment in the Renaissance, Wanish, climbing water. the mountain. Sorry, dude. Uh, yeah, watershed moment. And uh, so even though he's going to beg the next five popes in a row to leave Avignon and to go back to Rome, he himself leaves Rome and goes back to Avignon. And as we're going, this is a year after he climbs the mountain. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You haven't talked about him going to Rome. So we have to talk about him going to Rome in the first place. Oh, sorry. So will you tell me where you want to cut it? Because we're already at an hour, but whatever. Well, okay, let's talk about him going to Rome. Okay, so, so yeah. No, I, take, I was talk just... Talk about him going to Rome. I was just going to say that, uh, so after Paris, after Flanders, after Germany, he goes to Rome in 1336. He's the guest of the Church Brothers, the Clone, as we mentioned. And when, of course, when he is, he comes to the ruins of the Forum Romanum, he is moved by what he sees, even though it's in uh, disrepair. And again, all that reading he had done was nothing compared to what he sees here. And again, how great Rome truly was at one point. And he is just moved by this and even more motivated to, um, to look for texts and to, and to discover, to rediscover that world uh, that is, you know, more than a thousand years in the past. Yeah. He's, Experience was a lot like ours going there a yes. couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, we sang a song. Yeah, he just walked around. <laughs> we did sing a song. We'll get to that. He, um, you know, he was dumbstruck at the sight of the ancient ruins, places that he'd been thinking about his entire life because he read Virgil and Ovid and Cicero and Seneca. He gets there, he sees it with his own eyes. And you know, we, we just had that experience again recently. Um, it's amazing, right? Walking yeah. around the, the old forum, the Palatine Hill, just, I don't know, uh, immersing yourself yeah. in, in, in this visualization of uh, what had once been. Well, we, when we were on top, looking down on the forum, and you, and you mentioned this, but that was, the, that was probably one of the great moments, just looking down and taking it all in at a glance. That was a marketplace. There were courts. And you can just picture these guys in their tunics and whatever and togas just going around, doing the business of Rome, you know, 
pretty much the masters of the known world. And it was just really amazing. And then to walk down there and then to walk uh, on that actual ground, that was, that was for me, the height of almost the entire tour. But just that view when we first got to the height and looked down, and you, you commented on that was just absolutely glorious. And Petrarch thought so as well. And he's convinced that the city must rise again. And he's got a plan for how he's going to do that. <gasps> Cunning plan. Yeah, he is going to write a new Aeneid. Nice. He is going to be the new Virgil. Fuck this love poetry bullshit. He is going That's to a write a new massive masterpiece that uh, celebrates the glory of ancient Rome. And it's going to be so fucking awesome and amazing. And he's going to be so famous that uh, everyone's going to agree with him and they're going to rebuild Rome to its former glory. And and like you were saying previously, during his travel... um, which was on and off for seven years. I mean, he meets the finest scholars of the various countries and city-states, churchmen, lawyers. Um, he meets statesmen from England and France who are visiting. He's obviously now famous because of his writings, his love poetry. And uh, he shares with everybody he meets his love of classical literature. And he encourages everyone who will listen to him to look for the lost um the lost classical works. But like you said, he's going to go back to Vaucluse in 1337, a year after climbing the mountain. That's 15 miles east of Avignon. He's back in nature. He's getting away from the hustle and bustle and he's going to work on his next great project. Yeah. He buys a house in the country in Vaucluse. He gets out of Avignon. Avignon's just making him miserable because he keeps seeing Laura every time he goes there. So he moves to the country sits down in 1338 mm-hmm. to embrace his new muse, Rome, and begin an epic poem in the style of Virgil, which he's going to write in Latin because, you know, he doesn't expect Laura to read this one. It's not about her. It's going to be about the Second Punic War and one of Rome's most famous generals, Publius Cornelius Scipio Africanus Major, and the name of that poem was Say, hurry, boy, it's waiting. Now. 